Hello and happy International Women's Day. Yes, happy International Women's Day, Amanda. Thank you, Tinny. We are back with Open Access, and that is, of course, the podcast that examines our agency and our industry through culture and trends today. Now, hopefully, um, when this goes live, you will be inundated with lots of stuff around International Women's Day and feminism and probably pay gap and all of this stuff. <laughs> Um, but you know, at Open Access or Access Brand Communications, we like to be a little bit more controversial. And get <laughs> yes. ourselves into some hot water. <laughs> so today's podcast is actually going to be around in- intersectionality. Yes. And feminism and International Women's Day. Fantastic. Um, it's something dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Amanda tells me it's dear to her heart. <laughs> Why is it dear to your heart, Tinny? <laughs> it's dear to my heart because, well, we'll get into what intersectionality actually is. Yeah. But as a British Indian woman in a not, if I'm honest, very diverse, visually very diverse industry, mm-hmm. um, I'm always looking to see people like me. Uh-huh. And particularly around International Women's Day, I find there is a void there Uh that no one ever talks about diversity in the context of feminism Um, whether that's and from my perspective it's about people of colour but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the same for everyone I think there are lots of things that haven't been covered Um, so I'm just really interested in it and I always feel a little bit deflated and a bit disappointed that that I just don't see anything about it it's almost like these two things are separated like diversity is one box Mm -hmm. and feminism and women's like issues are another box and mm-hmm. never the twain yeah um so that leads me on to okay what what is intersectionality what does that mean intersectionality is interesting because as somebody who does uh, proudly call herself a feminist and seeks out feminist talks and lectures and things like that it really is as you so rightly have um identified or described looking at feminism through various aspects so that could be race ability um, whether or not you're trans, and, and one that is mostly very near and dear to my heart is socioeconomic status, because I often find that the feminism movement is very much for very wealthy women and women who are employed, and I think some of those women don't treat other wo- the, the women who do their nails very well, for example. So it's really saying how do we apply these rules equally across and through these various lenses. That's such an important point. I think socioeconomic stuff is just particularly in our industry, is such a huge, huge thing. Yes. Um, why, I guess my big question is, why don't we speak about it in the same context as feminism? Sometimes I think it is, well, <laughs> as with everything we dive into on this podcast, and because I'm thinking about so much of it on the fly, we don't give ourselves an easy job. You're right, we take very nuanced topics. So this is an interesting one because... Sometimes I think these agendas compete. So you will hear, let's just use a very um, obvious example. So let's look at Hillary Clinton running against Barack Obama. So you have got people choosing camps and and trying to decide where to put their focus and efforts. I think there's also the issue of identity and how people identify themselves first and foremost. I think one thing that's happened within the feminist movement, um, which I think we're seeing being at least brought to the surface now, is that people thought that that women had made a lot of progress that perhaps in fact that they hadn't. So I think people st- 
stopped identifying themselves as feminists and started focusing on some of these other things where they felt less progress or less evident progress had been made, when in fact I think the real thing that chaps my ass, quite frankly, forgive my vulgarity on the podcast, is that all of these things within the women's rights movement were, were just sort of not being addressed. I think what is interesting is I hear a lot of, a lot of um, people who talk about intersectionality and writers mm-hmm. and, and speakers, when they, they talk about intersectionality and they say why they don't subscribe to some of the more common feminist movements, like even the Women's March, Right. Um, a lot of the intersectionality uh, or intersectional um, writers and speakers don't attend because they're mm-hmm. like, this is just for white women. But is what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there is a, what's the phrase, um, high tide lifts all boats? Oh, sure. A ri- yeah, yeah. A rising tide. A rising tide lifts yeah. all boats. Well, I think that the problem with excluding oneself from a conversation, and we see this happen every day in our professional and our personal lives, is as soon as you opt out, um, often the thing that you feared the most will happen. So I think sometimes if you opt out, then you are out of that conversation and it's not going to progress very well without you. So there is a danger to doing that, and I I would encourage people to to be as encompassing and as inclusive, and that that very much is about including oneself. So that really sums up, I suppose, how I feel about that. There was another aspect to your question that I think that I may not have addressed, but it was something about how people don't talk about talk about Mm. these things together. Yeah, it's really interesting. Monroe Bergdorf. Mm. Did I just flip that? No. I, this is anyone listening who knows I'm a New Yorker. I have such issues with this name only because of Bergdorf Goodman, which I loved. <laughs> and so it's stuck in my head. Anyway, um, I was reading some tweets from her about the suffragette movement. Mm-hmm. And they were very uh, angry about the suffragette movement because that was a moment in time that celebrated when white women got the vote and in fact black women didn't get it until very far after. And I remember it was so funny because I was really spending time on that tweet and thinking about that issue and trying to see both sides. And then I got all sorts of salty in a very, um, and, and here's intersectionality right, uh, right in play because then I thought, well, who is she to necessarily speak about this? Because she hasn't been a woman. She hasn't grown up as a woman her whole life, and I have a different experience wearing a woman's skin, and then had to check myself, and then, and then hence the debate continues. And yeah. I think this is just a perfect example of exactly how big this topic can be, and how sometimes if you do go to a feminist lecture, you can see it break apart and get violent. <laughs> and yeah. quite frankly, a lot of feminists are, are very afraid to speak about it. Well, yeah, I think that's what's interesting. I mean, even even today, as I sat at my desk and I was talking with a colleague about what this podcast is going to be about, firstly, she said, I have absolutely no idea what that word means. Yeah. And secondly, and this is absolutely on me, This is there is no evidence that this actually happened. <laughs> but I did feel like maybe people were rolling their eyes because here I am banging on about diversity again. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and you can tell people are like, well, it's International Women's Day, why can't it all be just about feminism? And I think that's a very privileged place to come from. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think in the workplace, it's so difficult to even start having these conversations without people thinking you're playing some kind of card. Whether mm. it's the race card, whether it's the gender card, whether it's the socioeconomic card, it makes you feel like you have a chip on your shoulder, which 
to a certain extent. Well, actually, I just don't think I do have a chip on my shoulder, but yeah. what I want to see is fair representation. Sure. 13% of this country are BME. Right. 13% of this... Well, actually, probably 13% of this agency are. <laughs> That's actually <laughs> probably true. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> but that is not the experience I have looking around this large building and certainly not the experience I yeah. have when I look at the very senior members of the team. I mm-hmm. think that's what really disappoints me is that it's, I never hear from a person who looks like me unless they're talking about diversity. I don't right. see them talking about the numbers. I don't hear, hear, see them talking about initiatives. I don't hear them talking about influencer marketing, even though everyone is talking about influencer mm-hmm. marketing. Mm-hmm. I just don't see it. I don't see their representation and I find it sad. And I'm from a very privileged background, mm-hmm. which you can tell from my voice. But I think about the people that are coming up, what are they seeing? Yeah. You know, I, I'm also in a, you know, a fairly senior position in this agency. So, like, how are the AEs of the world, the interns, the apprenticeships, it's also National Apprenticeship Week. Yes. Um, <laughs> how do they feel about it and how do they see it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my question for you, Amanda, mm. is how do we make it more visible? How do we talk about intersectionality in a more open way so that it doesn't make people scared? Mm-hmm. And how do we help these people be more visible? Well, I'm not sure that you can approach conversations with the assurance that you're not going to make people scared. Mm. And I think that that could potentially be a misstep of where etiquette has brought us. And this is a very common meme that's going around in our very divisive times that says that this idea that we keep our politics to ourselves is is a position of privilege because people just don't want to feel comfortable and they don't want the boat to rock. And generally, the people who don't want the boat to rock are the people who are sitting the most comfortably inside of it. So... I think that what I can tell you is you probably can't have those conversations without scaring somebody or without facing an eye roll or without somebody Mm. thinking, there they go again, they're talking about this thing again. And it is a passion of yours and there's no reason you shouldn't talk about it. People Mm. are passionate about all sorts of things. I hear a lot about people's dogs and babies and various and other interests which at access range you know from polio to the plague <laughs> we're a really fun agency <laughs> yes exactly um so so that is the first part now how you give visibility to people is a completely different issue because everybody is up for a certain level of his or her own publicity I suppose. So it really does need to be an honest conversation about how you want to do that does that person want to be in the spotlight. Some don't. Some want to be very, um, what is the word, assimilative? I just made that up. Some people want to assimilate. (laughs) Some people want to stand out. Some people are promotional. Some people are a little bit more private. So I think it does actually mandate picking the talent, picking who is a role model, and and doing that in a fair way so that that in and of itself is not an exercise of privilege. You know, I deem thee talented and acceptable to go in front of people. Right. Right. To really listen to what people are saying and how they want to talk to, to about themselves and to make those opportunities happen. And then to hold them accountable because we on this podcast, for example, um, have had somebody who continues to say that she wants to come forward and tell her story about what it was like to work here as a woman of color. Mm. And... and you know, just for logistical reasons, we can't make that happen. But it is, you know, if someone's passionate about it, they have to come forward. Yeah. I, I agree to a certain extent. I think 
what I find difficult, and I've made this bold statement before and clearly <laughs> I'm not seeing it through, um, is that I don't want to be the diversity champion. I am obviously uh-huh. passionate about it because you, I have to be, uh-huh. but I, I don't, I think it's frustrating having to always be that person. Like if there's a diversity event, obviously I'll go because I've got brown skin. Mm-hmm. Whereas it does sometimes feel that the onus is on me or whoever is mm-hmm. feeling that, that they're not included to force an inclusion. So it's, it, that is a very good point. And I think that there are things that you can do without having to be a diversity champion. Yeah. So that could be much more silent in terms of, I'm going to be a recruitment champion then. Mm. I'm going to make sure that the next cast of candidates that come in here are all sourced from a different place, that yeah. we've looked at this differently. I'm going to look at you know, whatever mm. association where I know there is young talent, diverse talent That's available. Um, so I think there are other ways to skin a cat if mm. you yourself don't want to always be that person and I completely understand that it really there are a lot of entry points to have this conversation and it is tricky and it is tricky when there are so few if you are in fact a minority and there are fewer of you out there then there are fewer people that people choose from and they keep getting trot out at these events and I think over Mm. time then they turn into company people in some ways, you yeah. know, you're going to hear the same line over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we have that conversation in a broader fashion within an agency? Um, Particularly an agency, you know, in any creative agency, let's face it, the number of minorities, whether it's race, whether it's socioeconomic, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is pretty limited. So how do we have those open conversations with our staff? The, these questions are always so hard for me to answer only insofar as we work at a special place yeah, and we have a certain team dynamic and a certain chemistry where we seem to have some of those conversations fairly Mm. openly about a position and who we would ideally like to have in it without eliminating anybody, without expressing any bias, but the fact we have said openly around here we need a couple of new Mm, types of people, right? We need a, a different level of thinking, we need a different level of ability, we want somebody to reflect a different class, a different experience. Um, And because we have been open about it, we can have those conversations. I think everything, I will always continue to say this, you have to talk and you have to listen and you have to counter objections in a polite way so that hopefully you can at least, if not bring somebody over to your side, make sure that they don't feel so vehemently left out and excluded that they take on an obstructive position. I think that's that's mm. great advice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think you said a lot of great advice. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, well, it's International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. It's always about the gender pay gap. Um, we've seen in our industry certain agencies come out, mm-hmm. Golan, Hill and Knowlton, saying the, the gender pay gap is the other way around because they employ so many women in leadership right. positions. Right. Um, but I would say, from an intersectionality point of view, there is research that came out two days ago that shows that BME mm. um, people in the public sector earn up to 70, 37% less than mm-hmm. their white colleagues. Mm-hmm. And that's true for um, British Indians, but to a much less degree because of education. 
they have a higher education right. rate. So what I think is interesting about intersectionality is that we will talk about it in this homogenous way, but mm. actually, if you then think about the educational part of it, yeah. it must be huge within our, within our industry, I would yeah. imagine. It is one of those things that as a, as a white woman, um, it's actually astounding to me when I really think about it. Because if you do think about being double hit with those circumstances yeah. or triple hit and, yeah. you know, a, a, exactly. there's such a, a mix of a things that a person can inherit genetically, uh, situationally and otherwise. Um, you know, when it comes to issues of pay, there is an element of me and, and I know what I'm about to say probably would raise the hackles of, of some people. I come from an American background where we were taught to keep shtum about salary. That was mm. a sackable offense. You can't talk about it. I am starting to just think it should be one data set. You know, it's yeah. like, these are the bands. Here's how this works. Everybody is available to everybody else. It is the fact that we don't talk about it and that there are there is this level of secrecy that allows people to be paid in inflated ways mm. and underpaid in inflated ways. Well, I think the other side of that, outside of the the gender and the minority pay issues, is actually people then have to start defending why they're paid so much. Well, yeah. And absolutely. To to their colleagues or to whoever. Yeah. And if you're not paid enough, you can tangibly demonstrate why you should be paid more and your value to a business, which right. I think is also important. Yeah. There is an element that I do find around, and this is not on topic, <laughs> and maybe we'll talk about it another day, of people deputising their careers to their line manager, like it's not their... Oh, I think that happens all like the time. Like it's not their issue. I think that happens all the time. And it's your responsibility as your line manager to get people promoted, but I think this takes that back into their hands mm -hmm. to say, well, this is how I'm... This is what I've done. This is what I've achieved. Do you not think that's exactly the same as this and I should be in this band? Yeah. And, you know, the only thing that makes me ever so slightly uncomfortable with that is that money begets money. Mm. And I think people who have money and who have wealth know all the loopholes, all the tax things. Yeah. I say this all the time. There's just such a, a hierarchy even within this issue. And... People who are savvy in that way know how to negotiate for themselves and they know how to have conversations in different ways. If you have systematically been overlooked in class because mm. you are black or poor and you don't have the right confidence or you have been taught to be grateful by somebody mm. who is trying to make sure that you assimilate the best you can, you already the Daily come, Mail. <laughs> you already just come to the table with such a set of communication and psychological issues where you do need somebody to help you along as well. I totally agree what you said about your career being deputized to your line manager. I think that's a really interesting point that people can just listen to in general. But there just needs to be a level of fairness that is built into the system and I didn't mean to go off on one. I didn't mean to terrify Omnicom. I'm not going to start publishing everybody's pay packs. <laughs> we can talk about it as a way forward. <laughs> but I do think this is where society needs to work better to, to address this huge and growing issue of wealth inequity. Okay, but then on that point, to bring it back to intersectionality, mm -hmm. what can we do as an industry to help those people who are coming in mm -hmm. at a very junior level through great initiatives like... Um, commercial break sure. one of our partners or even the apprenticeship program where they may not have that confidence yeah and they don't know how to articulate themselves 
in a way what steps should we be doing as line managers yeah. and as companies to help people have the same voice that's something that isn't within our control to a certain right. extent right that it takes a lot of communication and it is so easy to talk about these things on a podcast and so much harder in real life mm. to look at a candidate who is a little bit potentially rough around the edges or doesn't speak like anybody else in the agency to watch how that affects that person's confidence and and how he or she might feel less equipped to have these conversations um, the first thing that you can absolutely do is make sure that for whatever position you've hired them for, they are paid equally to what everybody else is. Just because somebody came through a different stream or filter doesn't mean that you automatically put them in that thing and think that they are discounted. Mm. So yeah. in terms of just you know getting your starting clean, you start them on everybody else and you absolutely commit that time as a line manager to saying, how's it going? Here's what you could do. Here's how you can harness this particular gift. Do you, this is just a question, Yeah. Uh, do you think we should be communicating that, then to, to that, that to them as well, to say you are on exactly the same as everyone else at mm-hmm. your level, you are an equal, do you think we should be being a bit more blatant about it? I think so, actually. That's a conversation I've literally never had with any Yeah. I'm sorry. And I think this, the... The thing about all of these issues where it gets slippy is nobody wants to mess up. First of all, people are terrified a little bit of HR policy. So they're very afraid to have a conversation that's going to sound like they're getting in hot water. When in fact, half of these things could just be addressed by talking because there's just curiosities that people share. And and if we could talk about them in just that way, like the question I'm asking is that of curiosity. I just want to absolutely be clear that you know that you are 100% equal to all of these people and I want to hear your voice. There's no reason to sit back in a brainstorm if you've been invited. I mean, I say that all the time to everybody. If I've invited you to a meeting, you better have a reason for being there. If I just notice somebody staring off at a whiteboard, I'd get kind of salty. And that doesn't matter, um, you know, what they look like or where they came from. I was actually delighted to hear on our last podcast that our apprentice said that she felt the, the thing that surprised her the most was she felt so included and such an integral part of the agency from day one and that people wanted to hear from her. And I think that's a real, that's a special thing about our culture, but that's something a manager should look to cultivate. That is some great advice. Oh, thanks. My last question is really about how, and I feel like we, we say this a lot, and it somehow manages to come into almost every podcast that we do (laughs) yeah but how do we help young I don't want to say disadvantaged women but women who have not necessarily had all of the same opportunities whether they've realized Mm. it or not but certainly are starting from a few paces behind how do we help them creative industries once they're in how Mm -hmm. do we cultivate them if they're in a leadership position how do we start to give them a role that isn't just focused on diversity. Oh, God, yeah. Um, Well, a lot of that is just examining where a real skill set is. And these can lie in surprising places. And this is a trick with any employees. You can suddenly find, I think it's a trick with everybody, I I find it with myself. The things that I think I'm good at are not always the things that I'm great at. I remember when I was asked to run the P&L of this office, I, I was like, no, I've been in a creative and strategic path my whole life. Why would I ever want to deal with a P&L? And then I found that there were certain gifts that I had for doing that or, or certain ways in which I was really numerate that had I not been given a chance I would have never known. Mm. So the first thing 
um, is to make sure that there is plenty of opportunity, but then to see where people's hidden skills really are, to, or, not, or not even hidden, where their skills are, to really observe what they do and how they act, not just in a work setting, but outside of one. If, we, if you really listen to people, they'll start telling you about these crazy things that they do um, when they're at home, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you, get, you start to get a sense of that person's very commercial, that person's super creative, that person has spotted a gap on the market and is actually doing this crazy thing. I mean, I, I knew a woman ages ago who on the side was always banging on about dog treats. And I was like, that is so weird that she's always making dog food at home. And now she's like one of the, you know, how gourmet dog food is like made out of <laughs> peanut butter. She's like a little mogul and I totally miss that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's not a great example. Other than to just say you have to take an interest and you have to take an interest in everybody equally and you have to talk to people. And it, all that time that we think is not actually work time, the time that you walk to the marketplace with somebody else, the time that you have a drink after work, when you really start listening to people, that's when, when you notice what they're all about and where their talents may lie and what kind of opportunities would appeal to them. And sometimes you just have to take a risk. And we do it every day on white people and on white men. They get to do whatever they want. They, <laughs> sorry, I did, I did not mean they to. They get to fail. Well, they get to fail. They are allowed the luxury of failing. So I didn't mean to, to say that in such a divisive way. But the truth is that has been the norm for so long. Mm -hmm. And we all know, we've all read the articles about how uh, when a man and a woman look at a job description, a man thinks, you know, if I haven't, if I only know 70% of this, I'm going for this job, it's a leap. And a woman goes, oh my God, I'm at a 30% deficit, I could never go for this job. So again, apply all those various sections to that scenario, and, you, and you're looking at somebody who is at a level of disadvantage if nobody encourages them to take a chance and to foster that. So I think we need to apply that same risk-taking and, and acceptance of failure across the boards. Because more than not, more often than not, people don't fail. And if they work together, I'm really off on one now. <laughs> if they work together, then all of those minds working on solving a problem. It's very rare that we fail here. Yeah. I would agree if you see something happening, you're usually able to stop it. And if it's going to be a failure because it's just not going to work, it, you know, we, we move on. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. What I like about that answer, Amanda, is that we are coming to the end of our podcast. And that last answer yes. applies to everyone. It doesn't just apply to intersectionality or feminist. A man can listen to that and be like, yeah, I should take more risk. And yeah, yeah, I should think about my skill set and, and try different things and see actually where my skills lie. It doesn't yeah. have to be it doesn't have to be just for a certain subset of society. I think that is good advice for us good. all to take on. And that brings us to the end of the intersectionality and feminism podcast. Well good because that was a very difficult podcast, but I think worthwhile and I hope everyone enjoys listening to it. I think, think it was worthwhile. It. I've certainly taken a few things. I've even made notes. Oh good. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things I can do. Um, but I would like to revisit this again and mm. maybe have a, a different chat and maybe have someone else in here. Yeah. Um, talking about it as well, but but not for the moment. <laughs> well, I would um, love to. But on that note, happy International Women's Day to everyone. I hope you're celebrating. And um, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.